right, well, hello, everybody. So, you know, we started this service with the whole COVID thing, making sure we had some social distancing, but people just keep coming, and so I just keep preaching, and so that's what's going to just happen, I guess, right? Um, Very cool to see the youth group in here each time for the worship, though, to see how that's grown over the last, uh, well... Certainly grew over last year when we didn't have youth group, right, because of COVID, but uh, even before that, to just see God continuing to do those things. By the way, I should probably introduce myself. Uh, You guys are probably used to Brian, the intern. He's been preaching quite a bit lately, and so I am Sean, the pastor, and I'm going to be filling in for him for the next couple of years, probably, and, uh, but if you miss Brian, the intern, he's teaching Wednesday nights right now, so we've had opportunity to hear from him in a a couple of different ways, Um, but he's done a, a good job for us in keeping this book going. Uh, The other thing I should remind you of is we are working our way through the New Testament one chapter a week, which is pretty fast, really. It's it's a quick way to go through the scriptures. It'll take us about five-ish years, and we're like three years through that at this point, so just a couple of years left. Uh, But sometimes it does make it a little awkward when you try to work through it a chapter at a time uh, to make it kind of fit together. Uh, But I do think it gives us a good view of the scripture. Uh, We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 tonight. Uh, Something interesting happens here. Um, The the Apostle Paul, uh, you you guys might recall this, he was blind or nearly blind. He didn't uh, have that uh, situation where he was writing his letters. He was actually dictating them to people, and then they would write them down. So the Holy Spirit would inspire the Apostle Paul. He would begin to speak, and these guys would write them down for him, and then they would send those out, and then those have been collected for us. What's interesting, though, is the style of the Apostle Paul is more conversational than it is theological, if that makes sense. It's not like you're reading a textbook and everything is clearly defined. You break here, you break here, you break here. New topic, new topic, new topic. Here's your heading. It's not like that. It's really very conversational. And in that vein, what happened in this book is in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul started to tell a story. He was in Troas doing ministry. He sent Titus to Corinth with a letter that is called the Sorrowful Letter uh, because it comes across with great force. Uh, And then he hasn't heard back yet from Titus on how that went when he brought that letter to Corinth. And he's really kind of freaked out about it. So he's telling the story there about he was doing ministry in Troas. He hadn't heard from Titus yet. And so he then leaves Troas and goes to Macedonia looking for Titus, and that's where he left the story off in chapter 2. Well, he's going to pick that story back up in chapter 7, verse 5. Everything in between that, um, theology nuts call that the great parentheses, this whole section in there where Paul is just kind of defending his ministry to the Corinthians. Uh, He was trying to restore uh, what, at least in his mind, uh, he thought could possibly have been a broken relationship. Uh, we'll see a couple of those reasons in here, but let me just kind of lay it out. Uh, part of the reason he thought the relationship might have been broken is uh, there had been some who had passed through Corinth that had kind of uh, spoken poorly about the Apostle Paul, who had kind of gone after his reputation, uh, even to the point where people started to ask Paul, like, what are your credentials? Why do you even get to speak to us? Which is funny because Paul led them to Christ, right? Uh, and in addition to that, he's worried about this letter that he's written, uh, that it might have caused a lot of pain to the church. And so uh, that's kind of the, the background behind what we're looking at here. Uh, but you know, when I was talking about how those chapters don't always flow nicely, 
There's another thing you need to know about the Bible, that the chapter breaks are not inspired by God. Those were added later to make it easier to find sections of Scripture. And so rather than just saying somewhere in the book of Corinthians, they divide it into chapters, they divide it into verses, so it's easily indexed so you can find those things. Uh, but uh, pretty much everyone universally agrees that whoever put chapter 7 ending, or I mean beginning here in verse 1, was just wrong. It should have been verse 2. Verse 1 really belongs to the end of chapter 6. So we'll pick that up and then we'll move on to the rest of this. So verse 7, and here's your hint by the way, if you start a chapter with therefore, it should be a quick hint that it's already talking about something that it was already talking about in the previous chapter. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That word therefore is pointing us back to something specific. Specifically here it's pointing us back to some promises that are found in verses 16, 17, and 18 where Paul is just quoting some Old Testament promises of God. Uh, four quick promises that you can gather out of that in verse 16. Uh, there's this promise, I will dwell in them and walk among them. Another promise in verse 16, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then at the end of verse 17, I will welcome you. And then the fourth promise there in verse 18, I will be a father to you and you will be sons to me. So these great promises have been made by God to his people that he would dwell amongst them, that he would be their God, that he would welcome them, that he would be a father to them. Therefore, Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Because we have these promises that God is going to be with us, he's going to welcome us, he's going to be our God, he's going to be our Father. Because we're going to be in the presence of God, we should probably start living like people who are going to be in the presence of God. He's asking us to make some reforms as believers in our lives, to cleanse ourselves from all defilement and to uh, perfect holiness in the fear of God. He's asking us to do that work. Now, for some of us as Christians, that might actually sound a little bit weird because we think in terms of, I was saved by grace through faith apart from works, right? Like we think to ourselves, well, I'm, I'm saved, so I don't really have to do all those things. Those things have all been forgiven by Jesus Christ. Yes, that's true, but now that you've been forgiven, you should start living like someone who is forgiven. You should start living like somebody who is a child of God. You should start living like somebody who's living in the presence of God or living like somebody who's called Jesus Christ Lord. If he's Lord, you're going to do the things he's asked you to do. Theologically, this deals with the concept of sanctification, uh, which you don't see in the text there, but it's that word holiness. Uh, that word holiness is a Greek word, hagios, which reminds us of hagendos. And in the same way that the word hagios means set apart from God, hagendos means set apart for Sean, right? That same idea, because we've been set apart from God, we've been made holy, there's this idea that we are positionally sanctified in Jesus Christ. Because we're in Jesus Christ, we are made holy. There's also this understanding that because we're in Jesus Christ, our holiness is permanent. In other words, when we enter into heaven, we will be holy for all eternity. There's a permanence. It's not just positional, but it's permanent. But there's a piece of it that we sometimes kind of like to overlook, and there's a nature of while we're here on earth, our holiness is also progressive. 
that we need to live like Christians. There's effort invested in that, not so that we can be saved, but because we are saved. Not because we need to be sinless, but because we need to sin less. That we need to make that effort to begin to live a life like that. All kinds of scriptures talk about that. Uh, my favorite would be in 1 Thessalonians, if you want to look this up later. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-7 through 7 just has this kind of great treatise on this idea that this is God's will for you, that you be sanctified. And then it starts to list out ways that you can live a sanctified, a life that is set apart for God. So with those promises, we should live as holy people. Now Paul's going to come back to that later on in this chapter. Um, but he's really trying to, to make sure that he has a good, restored relationship with the people of Corinth. That's really where he's going with all this. So he says this in verse 2, Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I've said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. Again, Paul's trying to restore what is a potentially broken relationship. And you have kind of this, this difficulty there because Paul isn't physically with the church in Corinth. He's quite a ways away. He doesn't really know how they're reacting to all of these things. He's only hearing kind of various reports and he's just trying to do his best to make sure he does his part as far as, far as is possible with him to be at peace with these people. And so he's asking them to make room in their hearts for him, which is a callback to chapter 6 in verse 11 when he says, O Corinthians, our heart is open wide. Now in like exchange, open wide to us also. He, he wants to see that they love him as much as he loves them. He defends himself, and this is where we uh, are thinking that maybe there had been some people who were uh, um, falsely speaking of Paul's reputation, saying things about Paul that weren't true. And so Paul just again sets the record straight. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. In fact, one of the accusations against the Apostle Paul, he's probably not really a good apostle because he doesn't even ask for money. And everything you get for free is, you know, just the kind of stuff you get for free, right? And so that was just one of those accusations. But he wasn't taking advantage of them. This is a guy that was having trouble seeing, and yet he worked as a tent maker just to provide for his own ministry. This is a guy who was doing nothing to put a burden on the church at Corinth there. And he's just reminding them of those facts. He wants them to be opened up to him so that they can have this growing, great relationship. Well, verse 4, Paul continues on, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. Well, Paul is talking again about Titus now, and this is where it throws back to what he was trying to tell them earlier in the book. Uh, that is that he had sent Titus to them, and he had really been bragging to Titus, like, man, Titus, those Corinthians, they're going to take such good care of you. It's going to be amazing. You're going to walk away from that church refreshed. Oh, by the way, on your way there, would you take this letter to them? 
Well, he sends this letter to them, which is really a a rebuke of them. We'll see a little bit more of that here in a little bit. And then once the letter leaves, Paul's like, wait a second. (laughs) I just told Titus everything was going to be great in Corinth, but I'm also sending a letter to Corinth rebuking them, chewing them out for some sort of sin in their midst. Oh, no. (laughs) Maybe this isn't going to go so well. So so Paul, so worried about how things are going in Corinth, uh, again, he leaves Troas, goes to try to find... Uh, Titus in Macedonia somewhere just so he can get a report. Uh, it's not like today. It's not like Paul could just send a quick text to Titus. So how did it go in Corinth? Dot, dot, dot. Strange smiley face, <laughs> right? Like he couldn't just send a text. This is 2,000 years ago. The only way that was going to happen is if a letter came or if they actually talked to one another. Paul just couldn't wait anymore. anymore. He just couldn't wait. He had to know what was going on in Corinth. So he decides to leave where he's ministering in Troas and try to travel to find Titus who's on his way back from Corinth. Again, how awkward is that? It's not like he could just call him up, hey, hey, uh, where you at? All right, I'll meet you at the rest stop on I-25. Cool, see you then, right? Like he couldn't do that. So now he's traveling to find Titus, assuming that Titus is coming back to where he was and they have to meet up and it just causes all this anxiety, this fear, this stress uh, that's built up Within him. In fact, he describes his time there in Macedonia looking for Titus. He says, When we came into Macedonia in verse 5, we had no rest, physically exhausted. We were afflicted on every side, just problem after problem after problem conflicts without. And so there were even people that they were having conflicts with, maybe even amongst their own group. And then here's this kicker here fears within, just struggling, 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 which by the way, in case you're curious, this is the kind of guy I am, I'm quite encouraged to know that the Apostle Paul had fears and struggles and difficulties in his life. Not because I want Paul to have those issues, but because if the great Apostle Paul had fear, then maybe it's not weird that I'm a little bit afraid sometimes. Maybe it's not weird that I feel overwhelmed at times. Maybe it's not weird that I feel like I have no rest sometimes in my own life, in my own heart, in my own circumstances. If Paul went through those things, it's just, well, it's just the human experience, isn't it? And I think we all can look at times in our life where we were just overwhelmed by our circumstances and fear begins to creep in. And I know we like to be like, oh, we trust God. No fear. Nice words, but fear doesn't really work like that. Fear comes when you don't expect it. It's there regardless of all this other stuff. Now, you can theologically correct that fear within you sometimes. You can get to that point, but you don't often live all the time in that place where you just have no fear of anything, where nothing ever worries you, where there's no affliction in your life. That's just not the normal experience that we have as believers. And I take just a bit of comfort knowing that even the Apostle Paul went through that. But I take more comfort in verse 6. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us. God, who comforts the depressed... What does that say? It says that God recognizes the depressed. He recognizes that people have difficulties and struggles in their life. God recognizes it. He sees it, and He is a God who will bring comfort 
to those who are depressed. Again, this throws us back to chapter 1. This book actually started with this uh, picture of God as the comforter. In chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's a powerful statement there. It's, it's a real statement that we have to recognize that God works through people to comfort other people. That we become the tool, the instrument that God uses. Look how it says it in verse 6. God comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus was the, the instrument that God used to bring comfort to the Apostle Paul. Another believer, another person came into his life. I can talk about this just from experience, by the way. Um, you know, one of the things when people think like, I want to be a pastor, it's going to be so awesome. I'm going to go out there, I'm going to preach the word, it's going to be great. Uh, what nobody really thinks about is, I'm probably going to do a couple hundred sermons in my lifetime for funerals. That'll be a blast. Nobody thinks that. Like, I cannot wait to get to my first funeral. My first funeral was my brother's funeral. My first funeral here. But you know what that did? As God comforted me through that, He's now given me the ability to comfort other people. He's given me the opportunity to comfort other people with the comfort that I received from Him. You see how God takes what He gives us and He intends us to now use that to bless other people. Well, that's what's happened here. God is going to comfort the Apostle Paul because he's finally going to see Titus. But it's not just that he sees Titus, but here's the specifics about what Titus did that brought comfort. Not only by his coming in verse 7, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, speaking of the Corinthians, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Again, these people were brought in to comfort the Apostle Paul. God used them for that purpose of comforting. First comforted when he saw Titus, but then now comforted because Titus can report to him, no, I know you're worried that the Corinthians don't like you anymore, but actually that's not true. They've been longing to see you. They're mourning this time of separation. They are zealous for you. They, they love you, Paul. They can't wait to see you again. Paul hears that, and all of a sudden, not only is he comforted, it says he begins to rejoice. He can celebrate in that. Now, this is crazy, too, if you think about it, because verse 4 has this kind of oxymoronic comment in there. When we looked back at verse 4, uh, it says, I am overflowing with joy in all of our afflictions. Doesn't that just feel wrong? I am overflowing with joy in all of our afflictions. Those two things don't typically go together. Man, I'm having the worst day. It's awesome. My life is miserable. I couldn't be happier. Like if somebody said something like that, you'd be like, what is wrong with this guy? What this tells us about comfort, comfort doesn't always solve your problems. Comfort comes alongside you in the midst of your problems and lifts you up. Paul's problems didn't necessarily go away. But in the middle of his problems, he was comforted by Titus and the Corinthians, their care for him. Reminds me of the book of Job. Uh, maybe you guys remember the book of Job. Job had pretty much the worst life on record. Um, had some just terrible things all kind of happen, 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 happen all at once. 
Uh, and then his friends showed up and um, there's this like beautiful moment where his friends just kind of sit with him and they're just in his presence. That's the best thing his friends could have done, to just be there with him. Unfortunately, then they open their mouth and they start accusing him of all kinds of stuff and eventually God says, all right, you guys, knock it off. You don't know what you're talking about, right? But that moment when they just are with him in silence, it's really kind of a crazy thing that happens that we can be comforted just by being in the presence of people, just by being around other believers, just by having somebody with you in that moment. Somebody can comfort you just by being with you. I don't know if you've ever had that where you're just kind of overwhelmed and, and somebody comes over and they just put their arm around you. They're like, it's going to be okay. We'll get through this. I'm praying for you. Just a pat on the back at just the right moment. Or I don't know how to fix any of your problems. Your, prob- your problems are, are way above my pay grade. They're just terrible. Oh my goodness, it's horrible. But I'd gladly just go to lunch with you if you want. I'll just let you pour it all out. I'll just listen to you. There's comfort in that. God uses those people and those interactions and those moments to lift us up in the midst of heartache. And even more so when we realize that those people love us. Man, you can have a terrible day, but then somebody comes along and just lets you know how much they care about you, how they've been longing to see you. It just, it builds you back up. I remember it was a weird uh, interaction that happened. I had uh, uh, basically my best friend in high school, right? Uh, this is the guy that helped lead me to Christ, um, started bringing me to church. You know, it was just this amazing kind of ministry we had. Uh, and then uh, midway through college, we ended up going separate ways. And then after college, we didn't see each other after that. And then I kind of lost his number and he lost my number. It was just all these years are gone. Fast forward 20 years, I'm at a funeral here in Cheyenne and I see his parents. I'm like, oh my goodness, is Scott here? And they're like, no, Scott's not here, but here's his number. And it was just this weird moment where I called that number of my old buddy from high school. And all of a sudden, all the stress and all the burdens I was having, they were just gone like that in an instant. The problems didn't go away, but just hearing my buddy's voice, just hearing how excited he was to hear from me, what an encouragement that was, what a blessing that was. That, that longing that he had to hear from me and how he wished over the years we could have kept in contact. That's such an encouragement. And in that moment, he encouraged me. In the last year, his brother died. And I was able to call him and call his parents and say, man, I've I've been there 15 years ago when my brother died. And have that same conversation with them and be an encouragement to them. It's just powerful what God can do through those interactions to comfort us, to bring a level of comfort that we hadn't expected that doesn't solve all our problems sometimes, that it just, it's just God's way of saying you're not alone in this. Verse 8, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that your letter, or that I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing 
This godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So although I wrote you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. Paul was comforted also to hear of the repentance of his friends. An interesting thing that you don't think about. But God can comfort us when we see our friends living in repentance. And that was the circumstance that Paul had. Again, he had written this letter. It's known as the sorrowful letter. We don't have a copy of that letter. We don't know what his beef was. We don't know what was going on. Uh, Somewhere between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there was what's known here as the sorrowful letter that Paul sent. It's rebuking some sort of sin within the church there. Paul was a little bit worried that he might have come across a little bit too harsh in his tone, which I think, you know, most of us can probably recognize that. Uh, I don't know if you've ever like hit send on an email and then immediately regretted it. Like, oh, that was probably a little bit too rough. Or I think probably mostly where we see it now is you see a friend say something on Facebook that is clearly dumb. And so you have to point out how dumb it is to them, right? And so you like type back your response. You're like, ha ha, gotcha. Oh my goodness, that's my friend. I got to see that person again. Why would I say something like that? Like just this moment where you've overspoken. For me, it's sometimes like face to face. I'm just having a conversation with somebody and all of a sudden I say the thing I need to say, but I say it in the most harsh way humanly possible. And I'm like trying to catch the words before they get to their ears. Like as soon as I say it, I'm like, that was wrong. Missed it. (laughs) That's kind of how Paul was with this letter. I love how he says this. He says, you know, though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. (laughs) There was this time where he did regret it, but now because he knows how it turned out, he doesn't regret it. But when he sent it, once it was gone, he was like, oh no, what have I done? Have I, have I broken this relationship? Have I ruined this friendship by pointing out this sinfulness that they have going in their life, their struggle that's going on within their church? Maybe I've gone too far. In fact, he did cause them sorrow. When they got the letter, they were sad. They were sorrowful, but they were sorrowful to the point of repentance. When Paul pointed out their sin, they're like, I can't believe I did that. We can't believe we allowed that. But we've got we to do something about that. That's what Paul's talking about here. And then he's going to make this this distinction between a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. See, worldly sorrow is like this. I got caught, and I don't feel so good about that. So the next time I do this thing, I'm going to do it more tricky so I don't get caught. I feel bad that I got caught. I don't feel bad about what I did. Godly sorrow there in verse 10, though, is different. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret leading to salvation. This is one of those great verses in the book of 2 Corinthians. It's really kind of a sad deal that uh, 2 Corinthians is one of the least preached New Testament books in the New, in the, in the New Testament. That makes sense when you say it like that. It's one of the least 
commented on books. In fact, if you, uh, I was told, I didn't do the research, but uh, another um, pastor mentioned this, that if you look at commentaries on the New Testament, there are less commentaries on the book of the Second Corinthians than any other book in the rest of the New Testament. And part of it is because it has such a personal feel to it. It's not like this great theological uh, discussion. It's just kind of very personal, and it's almost like I'm reading somebody else's emails here. Is this wrong? This is like his journal, his, his, his letter to this church. Maybe this isn't my business, but it just kind of has this difference. But what's cool about 2 Corinthians is it has some of the best one-liners in the Bible. It just has these amazing points that it makes, and this is one of them in verse 10. Sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. Now, repentance, real sorrow leads to a change, a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of direction, saying, I'm not going to do that thing that I did anymore. I don't feel bad that I get caught. I feel bad that I did it at all. It's this leading to repentance. Remember before, Paul was saying, perfect holiness in the fear of God. This is what he's talking about. Oh my goodness, I I can't believe I did that. I can't believe we fell for that. I can't believe we allowed that in our lives or in our church. we've We've got to fix this. We've got to seek God for forgiveness. We've got to make the changes to make sure this doesn't happen. And I love that. It says that it's a sorrow that produces repentance without regret. They don't even miss it. Whatever it was, they're like, I am glad that's gone. I'm just glad that's out of my life. Like when I repented of eating cauliflower, I'm just glad that's gone. I'm glad that's out of my life, right? There's just no regret. I haven't once regretted that decision to give up cauliflower. And that's how it is in this circumstance here. Whatever it is, he doesn't even tell us what the sinfulness was. There was an offender and there was an offendee. Uh, But in the end, he was angry at the church. So we don't know exactly what it was. There's all kinds of guesses, but we don't need to mess with that too much. We just need to know that a a key element of a gospel life is that we've repented, that we turn away from sinfulness. And that goes back to that same idea of cleansing ourselves from all defilement of the flesh. Well, how do we cleanse ourselves of defilement? How do we repent? Well, first we confess our sins, and then we do the opposite. Instead of pursuing the lust of our flesh, we pursue Jesus Christ. Instead of doing the thing that we know was wrong, that we can't believe we did it, we stop doing that thing. We turn away from those things. And look what it produced in their life in verse 11. What earnestness, what vindication, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. It just produced all of this stuff, and it ultimately demonstrated that they were innocent by the time they got done with this repentance. An earnestness, a real desire to do the right thing is a vindication. They just can't wait to make this thing right, vindicate. Uh, this idea that it, it produced indignation in there, uh, a word we don't use much anymore, but it has right at its root the word dignity. When you put the word in in front of dignity, it's the opposite of dignity. They, they lost their dignity over this. Like, I cannot believe we did this. There's, there's no dignified way to look at what we did. They're so upset about whatever this was that happened in their life. And so they, they begin to now, in fear, desire, long, zeal, to avenge the wrong that they did, to make it right. 
That's what brought out real repentance in them. Paul says part of the reason he wrote that letter is just so that they would know that they appreciate the Apostle Paul when they saw what he said and they reacted to it. And he had kind of this confidence when he wrote the letter that kind of went away when he sent the letter. (laughs) But now it's back because he heard of the results of the letter. They repented of whatever this was, whatever this deed was that had happened in their lives. Well, we'll finish it up here. Midway through verse 13, it says, And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be true. His affection abounds all the more towards you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So Paul has moved from comfort to rejoicing now, and he's rejoicing at the fact that Titus was refreshed by that church. Uh, Again, I think Paul had been bragging to Titus, you have got to go to Corinth. That is the best church. Those people are going to take such good care of you. And now to hear that they actually did that, that Paul is actually able to hear from Titus that he was refreshed by his time there at the church, Paul's like ready to brag. He's like, oh man, I boasted to him about you and I was not put to shame. Our boasting was proved to be true. It was just the truth. That's how good that church was. Now, what's great about that is that builds the church back up, right? They might be feeling bad because they were, the last thing they heard from the Apostle Paul is you've done this horribly sinful thing. So could you imagine, even though they've gone about repentance, they're thinking to themselves, oh no, Paul just thinks we're horrible people. Now they get this letter where Paul's like, no, you're amazing. You're so good at caring for Titus and the other people that I've sent your way. And I knew you would do it. I knew you would. Bragging about him encouraging him in that way. Such a powerful way that he now gets to comfort and build them up. It says his affection abounds all the more as he remembers their obedience. It's powerful. And in all this, he begins to rejoice. Again, his afflictions didn't go away, but in the midst of his afflictions, he could rejoice because he had a godly person in his life. He had a group of believers who loved him, and he had a group of believers that he could see were a repentant group of believers, that they saw the sin that was in their life and they walked away from it once it was pointed out, brought encouragement to him. It's interesting to think then that Paul was able to encourage them in return, which reminds us for ourselves that God will use other people to comfort and refresh us. Sometimes they will comfort and refresh us just by being with us. Sometimes they will comfort and refresh us by expressing their love for us. But I think sometimes other believers comfort us by giving us opportunities for repentance. That that sometimes we just need somebody to say, dude, you are out of line. You're out of your mind. What are you doing? This isn't befitting of a man of God or a woman of God. You're better than this. I know you are. Sometimes we need that. And it brings us to a place of repentance. 
brings us to a place where we can perfect holiness in the fear of God. But the other part of that is to remember what Paul said at the beginning of the book. God comforts us so that we can comfort other people. And so we need to be prepared as well to be used by God to bring comfort and refreshment to other believers. That we need to have eyes that are open to the people around us. To think to ourselves, how can I comfort this person or that person? Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because it's not a skill that I actually have, just in case you're curious. Um, I, by nature, am oblivious to what everybody else has going on in their life unless they stop me and say, Sean, this is what I have going on in my life. And I'm almost always like, I had no idea. I'm just like that. I'm just not one of these guys that like is, I can feel somebody's emotions today. Like I can barely feel my own emotions, let alone your guys' emotions, right? But I have to get better at that. I have to look at this and say, wait a second, God has comforted me over and over and over again. I need to have the eyes, the heart to look at the people around me and say, how can I comfort them? It's a powerful thing that God entrusts with us. The ability to comfort one another. Again, we can do that as simply as just hanging out with them or expressing our love for them. Or if their depression, if their difficulties, if their afflictions come from their own sin, to just point it out. Sometimes we're struggling not because the world hates us, not because Satan hates us, but because we love the world too much and we love Satan's stuff too much. We start pursuing the wrong things and those things make us miserable and we just need somebody to be like, stop, just knock it off. What are you doing? Why are you doing these things? That's not who you are. If you do well, your countenance will be lifted up, God says. We need one another to comfort, to encourage. So I think that's plenty for one night. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, uh, obviously, as we get into the word, I, I pray that your spirit is... Um, looking at each one of our hearts and our lives and, and pointing out to us the areas that we need to perfect holiness in our life. That maybe just the very gentle rebukes in this passage would be enough for us to say, wow, what am I doing? That we would cleanse ourselves of that unrighteousness by confessing our sins to you and that we would repent and walk away from those things. Lord, maybe our repentance could be used to encourage somebody else, to lift somebody else up, to comfort somebody who's just been miserable as they've watched us sin. Lord, I would also pray uh, that we would be there to love one another. We would be there to build each other up. Father, my prayer is that if there is anyone in the room today who is downheartened, who's overwhelmed and afflicted from every side, who's exhausted physically, mentally, emotionally, that someone here would, would just do something to pick them up. A quick hug, a confirmation of love, or just an I'm praying for you. Father, I know you love us, and I thank you that you are a God of comfort. We thank you for the comfort that you bring us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.